0: Want to take your Bibles out? And you can find Leviticus chapter 16. You will find that in page 95 in the Pew Bible if you want to use that. In fact, if you want to take that Pew Bible home and uh, have a Bible of your very own, we'd love for you to be able to do that. Uh, we're continuing our study in the book of Leviticus. This now is the uh, seventh of, I believe, 13 planned sermons. So we're right in the middle of this series and we're kind of right in the heart of. Leviticus this morning, the very center and the core of this wonderful and amazing book here in Leviticus 16. And so consider the word of the Lord with me this morning as we begin in Leviticus 16 verse 1. Hear now the word of God. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Our Father, we're thankful for Your Word and we pray that even now You would help us to understand it as we consider a ritual formed thousands of years ago under a a different covenant and yet contains so many truths that we might learn who You are, what You have done through Christ, and that we might fall more in love with You because of the atonement in which You have provided. Help us. Give us ears to hear and a mind to understand. Let Your Spirit fall upon us that we might know our God through His Word. And that we might love Him. And we might love You with all our soul and mind and strength and heart. For our great gain and for Your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. It was in 1678 when John Bunyan wrote his famous Christian allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, the second best-selling book in English over all time. The first, as you know, is in your lap. He tells a story of a hero named Christian, though he did not start out that way. Bunyan introduces the hero with the opening words of his book, As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where I laid me down to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. I saw a man clothed with rags, with a book in his hand, and a great burden upon his back. He opened the book and read therein, and as he read, he wept and trembled. And not being able to Any longer to contain, he break out with a lamentable cry saying, What shall I do? The book is the law of God. The burden upon his back is the weight of his sin which the law has now exposed. The weight being so great upon Christian that he cries out in despair under its crushing load. Now, if God, by the way, just takes us as we are, then sin is no burden to us, is it? Right? And with the answer to, uh, to Christians cry, what shall I do? I think most of the world will say, at least most of our country would say, nothing. Don't worry about it. But if God judges us according to his laws revealed to us in his scripture, according to his perfect character, he is good and right to cry. What shall I do in light of this burden upon my back? Well, shortly thereafter, Bunyan tells us Christian has discovered what he shall do. For he writes, he came to a place somewhat ascending and upon that place stood a cross. And as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble. And so continued to do so until it came to the mouth of a grave where it fell in, and I saw it no more. With the sin now off his back, Christian responds in a song of deliverance proclaiming, Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in till i came hither what place is this must here be the beginning of my bliss must hear the burden fall from off my back must hear the strings that bound it to me crack blessed cross blessed grave blessed rather be the man that was there put to shame for me we come here to the heart of the book of leviticus Chapter 16, the holiest day of the year for the people of Israel, usually in October, sometimes in September, where a sin offering or a purification offering was given for the entire nation. That they might be washed from their defilement. That the burden upon them might be rolled off their back. It is called by God the Day of Atonement. Perhaps you've heard... Yom Kippur that's Hebrew for the day of atonement Yom simply meaning day Kippur meaning covering or atonement eventually the Jews would call it simply Yomah meaning the day it's on this day that the whole nation would gather together there at the tabernacle and God would atone for their sin in fact if you read Leviticus 16 you'll find that the word atonement mentioned 15 times Now, we've talked about the word of atonement in this series of Leviticus. We discovered that you could understand atonement to be at one mint. Just break the word apart into its three syllables and it kind of captures the meaning of atonement to be made one with God. It literally means to cover, in particular, cover their sins. I think even when we think about atonement, the question is raised for us about our own sins. I want to ask you before we even begin our study of this chapter, are your sins atoned for? Are you at one with God? Now, many people in our culture think, of course I am. Of course I'm okay with God. I'm a good person. And if that is your mentality, the question I would just simply want to put in your mind, if we are all by default okay with God, why then would God give His people this very rigorous ceremony in order to deal with their sin. Good religious people's sin, not wicked, heinous people, but these are good people. And yet God still says to them, your sins must be atoned for. In fact, he gives them a ceremony that is more elaborate than anything else in the Bible as he offers the people of Israel an opportunity to reflect upon their need of atonement and God's gracious provision of it. And I think he's doing the same thing for us this morning. My hope for us, my prayer has been, as I wrote this sermon, is that God would give you and I an opportunity, my brothers and sisters in Christ, to reflect upon the atonement in which God has given to us through Christ. Even considering why it is we need it. And so let's begin our study considering the need of atonement. We have uh, considered in the book of Leviticus that atonement really... It has kind of two metaphors or two meanings. One is we think about atonement in the sense that we are forgiven. Our sins are, are covered. Our sins are forgiven. The debt has been paid. But Leviticus has been very helpful for me and maybe for you in understanding a new facet to the atonement which we have received. And it's the idea that we have been cleansed from impurity and pollution and defilement. So atonement can mean forgiveness, and we see this at times in Leviticus. But far more often what we see in Leviticus, atonement means cleansing. Uh, And and the fact the day of atonement is primarily focused on the cleansing of their defilements. As, and we'll, we'll, we'll see here uh, through this chapter that their sin is defiling themselves and, and, and making them unfit to be in God's presence. And not only defiling themselves, interestingly, and maybe may strange to us, their sin is actually defiling God and His tabernacle. In fact, look in verse 16. You notice this is the high priest comes and he says, thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. Because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel, because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so what, what's the high priest going to do on this day is he's going to atone for the tabernacle. He's going to cleanse it. And then he's going to go outside and look what he'll do in verse 18. Then he shall go out to the altar. That's the bronze altar in the courtyard that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And so he's going to atone for the, the, the bronze altar upon which the sacrifices are made. And then look down in verse thirty. We read, For on this day shall atonement be made for, for you, for you all, right? For the people of Israel, to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. So atonement's made for God's people. And then you have this kind of a summary verse here in verse thirty three. He shall make atonement for the one, the holy sanctuary, and and shall make atonement two for the tent of meeting, and, and three for the altar, and he shall make atonement four for the priests, and five for all the people of the assembly. You see, atonement's being made for everything and everyone on this day. All the defilement from sin is washed away. Now, why this is helpful for you and I is that we are beginning to learn that our sin defiles us And our environment. I was trying to teach these truths to our children some time ago as I've been working through Leviticus. And trying to explain to them that sin is not simply breaking a rule. Sin is not simply falling short of a standard, though it is. But sin is pollution. Sin is defilement. Sin is unclean. Sin is like spraying graffiti all over God's creation. In this sense, I think we can understand the flood back in Genesis as God seeing a defiled world and washing it clean. Or we might consider the great day of the Lord when He will cleanse the earth once again, this time not with water, but with fire. And it's on this day of atonement here in Leviticus 16 that, that God begins to cleanse his people and to cleanse his house from the pollution of Israel's sin for the reason. The reason is so that God may continue to dwell with them. See, God won't live in the midst of defilement. He won't. In fact, we'll find out in the book of Revelation when you get to the end of Scripture that nothing, uh, speaking of the, the new Jerusalem where God inhabits upon the new earth, verse, uh, Revelation 21 verse 27 says nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. God won't dwell in uncleanness. He won't dwell In defilement, I think it might be helpful for you and I, as we seek for God to create a disdain for sin in our own hearts, to understand that sin is defiling, that sin is unclean, that sin is pollution. A handful of you will be headed to Ghana this Saturday. We'll pray for you, and at the end of the sermon, and you will be part of your trip. Will be ministering in the slums of Accra. And you will walk into a place and your senses will be immediately assaulted by defilement. You will smell it. You will see it. You will touch it. It is filth everywhere. Sewage everywhere you go. Covering everything. And my, my hope is that one thing that God does for you is you, you, you minister in that environment. That gives you a vivid picture of sin. This is what sin is like to God. That we would recognize that his disdain for it. Do you understand your sin this way, or do you just assume God is okay with it? God's okay with me. All right? Well, how, how do you know? I mean, so many people say, okay, God's just fine with who I am. Well, how do what's God's standard? I mean, what's the passing grade? How do we know? The Bible actually tells us in Romans 3 and verse 23, you know this, right? All have sin. And fallen short of the glory of God. The standard is the perfection of God's glory. And my brother and sister, my friend who is here today, no matter how good you are, you have fallen short. I have fallen short. We all have fallen short of that standard. My son, just uh, Josiah, he just got back from summer uh, Boy Scout camp for weekend camp. And one of the first things they do at Boy Scout camp for Josiah, they did it for me thirty years ago, is the first day you go out and you take your swim test, and you have to you have to swim a certain distance in a certain number of strokes in a certain time to demonstrate that you're proficient in the water, and then you could go on and work on your aquatic merit badges, sailing and rowing and, and all the rest. And so Josiah, of course, had no trouble with it. I had no trouble with it, but but some of the boys in Josiah's camp, and they did it when thirty years ago when I was a Boy Scout. some of the boys said, oh, we're not going to just swim the, the, you know, 300 meters or whatever it is. We're going to go for the mile swim. And I I was always impressed with those guys. The idea of swimming a mile uh, sounds like torture to me. I don't know. Um, If I have maybe a life jacket and a small engine, I think I could do it. Um, But the idea of swimming a mile, I mean, that just seems insurmountable to me. I think give me half a day and I I may not make it. And maybe you're a good swimmer. Maybe you could swim a mile. A mile, no problem. Maybe you're even better. Then you swim a mile. Maybe you're one of those few kind of uh, Uber athletes that could that could swim the English Channel, the 21 miles from Europe to England. But what if what if the standard, what if the what if God's swim test was not a quarter mile or a mile or 21 miles? What if it's not was not swimming from Europe to England? But what if it's swimming from D.C. to England, right? It doesn't really matter now if you could swim, I could do my quarter mile and you could do 21. You're not getting that much closer than me. We're all falling short. That's God's standard. It's much higher than ours. As you see in Leviticus 16 and verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. We're reminded of that story we consider back in Leviticus chapter 10 when Aaron's son tried to enter into God's presence without being invited and God killed them. He just struck them down in front of all the nation. He just struck them down with fire and and killed them. And after he struck them down, he explained to those why he just did that. And he said, among those near me, I will be treated as holy. We sang that, didn't we? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is holy and pure and good and right and glorious And sinless, and beautiful, and faithful, and utterly unlike you and me. And God warns Aaron do not make the same mistake as your sons. Do not come into my presence. Do not draw near to me whenever you feel like it, or I will kill you. You see that verse 2? So that he may not die. This is striking to me because this is exactly how most of our non-believing neighbors think they will approach God. One day we'll just walk on in, we'll just draw close to Him however we want. And I think we probably should beware of our own intuitions and our own assumptions about God. I do not believe they are trustworthy. I think that's why God says in verse one, "The Lord spoke to Moses." You need to understand this because Aaron might think he could come whenever he wants, and he can not. God is revealing himself to us as he teaches us that all roads do not lead to god which is what we hear all the time and i'm telling you from the word of god it is utter nonsense we are told it doesn't matter if you call him allah it doesn't matter if you call him buddha it doesn't matter if you call him jesus it doesn't matter as long as you're sincere as long as you try hard as long as you keep the rules and keep your your nose clean you will make it all paths lead to god we are told well my friends you try telling that to aaron Hey, Aaron, all... Listen, all all means you have to be sincere, Aaron, and then you could come to God and Aaron will tell you, I have two dead sons that prove otherwise. These weren't bad men. They weren't wicked men. They were sincere in their devotion to God and they wanted to draw near to God when they were not invited. And God struck them down. See, this whole chapter declares there's only one way to God. And it is by receiving God. His atonement in this covenant, there was a specific place where they had to receive it. Consider secondly, the place of atonement. I don't, you, I don't know if you have your note sheet here might be helpful to look on the back. I uh, put this diagram back on there and you can see this is the, the temple, uh, excuse me, the tabernacle district, and you have a large courtyard where the nation would gather and you have the altar of the burnt offerings where all the offerings would be, cons- would be burned, or at least portion of them. And then you have, of course, the tabernacle itself. And you notice there are two rooms to that tabernacle. The outer room was a very busy place. Priests would be in there every day making sure the menorah is, is, is lit and the incense is burning continually. But then you have this inner room, sometimes called by Scripture the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. Verse 2 refers to it as the Holy Place inside the veil. It calls it that because separating these two rooms is a four inch thick veil. Made of blue and scarlet and gold, embroidered with two giant guardian angels called the cherubim. And then, past that veil, you come into this most holy place and you'll find the Ark of the Covenant. You see, God refers to it there in verse 2. He says, Before the mercy seat that is on the Ark. So, the Ark of the Covenant is a golden box. The lid of that box is called a mercy seat. On top of that mercy seat were two um, uh, sculptures of angels, golden angels, one at each end. And there there was the, the ark with its mercy seat. Sometimes your translation may call it the atonement cover. Um, and and it, it, it's, it's important to understand we called it a mercy seat, but it wasn't a chair. This used to confuse me when I first came to Christ and I'm learning all about this. And I thought it was like a chair that God sat. No, it's not a chair. Um, but God does, in a symbolic way at this time, dwell symbolically above the mercy seat. You see that verse at the end of verse 2. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. And so this is where the high priest uh, would encounter God on the day of atonement. This, this one time, this one day of the year. This would be, my friends, humanity's closest encounter with God since the time Adam and Eve dwelt in the garden. In fact, this is very much pictured as a re-entry into the garden. As we've established earlier in Leviticus, remember when they were kicked out of the garden, Adam and Eve, and they got sent eastward, right? So they go east. It's a bad place to go. It's like going to D.C., okay? So they went east, all right? And then, then Cain killed Abel, and where did God send him? He sent him farther east. And then finally they built their Tower of Babel, right? The pinnacle to man's creation. And where was that? That was out in the east. And, and God, when He built His tabernacle, He had it, oh, wherever they camped, He had it always pointing in the same direction. And if the high priest wanted to come into God's presence, He would always, that eastward expulsion, would always be reversed as He would walk westward towards God. And then He would come to the guardian cherubim upon the veil, just as the cherubim guarded the entrance to the Garden of Eden, and He would go past, past, past those cherubim, and He would go into the, the very presence of God Himself. And as we've seen, this is a life and death issue for him. That's why God warns him. Tradition tells us that the high priest would go into seclusion a week before the Day of Atonement. He didn't want to be defiled accidentally. He would practice all these rituals every day except for going into the Holy of Holies. Right? The night before, the high priest would stay up all night praying and reading God's Word, preparing his own soul. You see, it was a place, listen, it was a place of awe. It's where God dwelt. It's where the people of God drew near to Him and worshipped Him. I wonder, are you in awe of God? I rejoice in the intimacy we have with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But I don't want the intimacy we have with the Lord to totally wipe out the awe of the transcendent God whom we worship. This God who spoke to Moses is the same God today that you have sung your praises to and offered your prayers to Him. My friends, we should not treat the corporate gathering of the people of God casually. We should enter into his presence, not mindful of what we want and what we expect, and how are my needs going to be met, but we should come mindful of what God wants from us, of who he is, what he has done, and we have come to bring him our worship. We should be in awe of the God of Leviticus is listening to our prayers and receiving our songs and searching our souls through his spirit. We should discipline our minds and engage our hearts as we worship Him, if you come on Sunday morning to the people of God and there is no awe in your heart, repent. Your God is worthy of your awe. He is close. He is intimate. We may draw near to Him as we shall see in a moment. But do not lose the awe. It was a place of awe but it was more than that it was a place of humility normally the high priest as you know would dress up like a king right we saw this in leviticus 8 his his vestments were brightly colored his intricate embroidery bells hanging from his hems Jewels, glittering jewels upon his chest, even a golden crown upon his head to testify to the importance of the position in which he held. And on the day of atonement, when he enters into God's presence, he removes his glittering breastplate. He sets down his golden crown. He lays aside his scarlet ephod and his embroidered robe and takes up new garments recorded in verse 4. He shall put on the holy linen coat and have the linen undergarment on His body and He shall tie the linen sash around His waist and wear the linen turbans. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe His body in water and then put them on. You see what He puts in place of His kingly robes? Simple, white linen. So on this day, He enters into the presence of God. And He will not come into God's presence dressed like a king. He is not there to flaunt his authority or negotiate from a position of power. Instead, he don't, dons the clothes, clothing of a servant, of a, of a slave, right? As he comes into God's presence, he will not come with any authority upon himself. By the way, do you know what the glorified saints in heaven are wearing in the presence of God even now? The Bible tells us white linen garments right? Pure from the blood of Christ. Here he comes into God's presence wearing the the clothing of a servant. See, when he speaks to the people of God on, on behalf of God, he looks regal. But when he goes to speak to God on behalf of the people, he's stripped of all honor and comes as a servant. It reminds me, maybe it reminds you of another That the Bible tells us about who laid aside his clothing and took on the garments of a servant that he might wash away the defilement of God's people. It was a place of humility. It was a place of self-forgetfulness. That should be our trademark as Christians, should it not? We should be of all people the most humble. You should be the most humble person in your workplace and the most humble person in your classroom. We should pursue humility in light of the atonement in which we have received. Praise God, by the way, that He gives us family and friends that seem to continually give us opportunities for humility. Right? It's good for us that we might humble ourselves. The Bible says, "Clothe yourself in humility." First Corinthians six: Are you willing to be wronged? Are you constantly fighting? For your own rights. Friends, we would do well to become more self forgetful in light of the atonement which we have received. Well, we've seen all the, so we've seen the place and the need, so how do they get it? Consider thirdly the means of atonement. The means of atonement. It begins with the priest's atonement. As you see in verse 11, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself. And for his house, he shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. So Aaron will slaughter this bull, take the the blood of the bull, and he will enter behind the veil into the Holy of Holies. But he does not carry the blood alone. Notice, he also carries a censer of burning incense. Verse 12. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fine a fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring them inside the veil. A censer would be a golden plate with chains, and then he would take the coals and put them in the bottom on that plate, and on top of it he would sprinkle this incense on it, and it would create this this cloud, this sweet smelling Um, cloud of perfume and the reason he would do this was to protect himself as you see in verse 13 and put the incense on the fire before the lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so here it is again so that he does not die right the perfume smoke shields him from being exposed to the glory of the lord as the lord said to moses "Um, no one can see me and live and it's there once he's there and the cloud is there he begins to apply the blood as we see in verse 14 and he shall take some of the blood of the bowl and sprinkle it with his finger on front of the mercy seat on the east side and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times seven being the number of completion or perfection as he seeks to atone for his sin. You notice he sprinkles it on the mercy seat. This is why we call it the mercy seat. Because it's there that we find God's mercy. After his sins have been atoned for. You notice he then will then atone for the people's sin. In a ritual very similar to what he did for his own. But this time he'll do it with a goat. As you see in verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people. And bring it's blood inside the veil and do so and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bowl, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. When he's done plying the blood upon the mercy seat, he'll go out to the courtyard. He'll take the blood of the bull and blood of the goat and he will cleanse the bronze altar where the sacrifices are made, cleansing it from their defilement. The result of all this, according to God's grace, is that the accumulated impurities of the people of Israel are washed away for another year. And they're washed away with blood. Which is somewhat disturbing, isn't it? Why so much blood? We know from the Bible that when we rebel against God, the just result for our rebellion is death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. God is good. God is just. He will not overlook evil. He will not overlook rebellion. He will not wink his eye at transgression. All sin will be dealt with. He is just, but He is also gracious. And so in grace, He offers a substitute. That sin can be covered through a substitute. Look, turn over one chapter to chapter 17. This, I think, is one of the most important verses in all the book of Leviticus. I, I think there are probably three key verses in this book. And, and this is one of them. Of Leviticus, Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you for on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is by the blood that makes for it is the blood that makes atonement for the life you see the blood's not magical the blood represents life right if you lose your blood you die and so you take the blood and when you do you're, you're declaring someone or something has died a life was given and then you begin to apply that that life that 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 death if you will over the mercy seat. In fact, look back in Leviticus 16. There's a little phrase I want you to note in verse 13. That we've already, we have already read, but we kind of just skipped over. It talks about this mercy seat. And then it tells us the mercy seat that is over. You see this? The testimony. The testimony is the law of God. It's the Ten Commandments, the core of this covenant in which God is entering with the people. And God wrote these Ten Commandments on these, on these two tablets, gave it to Moses, and Moses took the tablets or the testimony, and he put it in the Ark of the Covenant. And the idea is now that God is enthroned above the Ark, when He looks down, He sees His law. You shall know the gods before me. You shall not make any idols. You won't profane my name. You'll, you'll keep the Sabbath. You'll honor your parents. You will not murder. And you will not commit adultery. And you will not steal. You will not lie. You will not covet. He sees His law and He sees how His people have broken it. How they've abhorred His statutes and violated his covenant and how they have rejected him he sees his violated law but that is not all that he sees for upon the mercy seat there is blood and he sees that because of the broken law my people one has died in their place substitution has been made death must occur do you see how important sin is to god For those of you who have your sins atoned, please let God do this in your heart even now. Listen, how can sin be so important to God and at times so trivial to us? He says something or someone must die. And yet we so often shrug our shoulders and wink our eye. May God give us His understanding of sin so that we may truly understand the gift that atonement is. In fact, he offers them a picture of it. He shows them what he's going to do. In fact, before that goat is, is killed and brought into the holy place, there are actually two goats. Uh, two, two goats, and, and they're chosen by Lot. Look back in verse 7. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the Ten of Meeting, and Aaron shall cast Lots over the two goats. Remember the, the Urim and the Thumin we talked about re- earlier? One lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat, verse 9, on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it. And it will be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. two goats. One goat is the purification offering or sin offering. The other goat is called the Azazel. Maybe your translation translated as scapegoat. We're not sure exactly how to translate it. As means goat. Azel means away. It's the goat that goes away. Or verse 10 says it is uh, the goat that's sent away. So we call this, this is where that term came from, the scapegoat. It came from Leviticus chapter 11. This goat will be sent away. But before it's sent away, look what they do with it in verse 20. And when he has made an end of atonement for the holy place of the tent of meeting and for the altar, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is at readiness. The nation gathers... And in view of all the people of God, the, the high priest comes and he takes his goat and he lays both his hands on the goat and he confesses all their sin that they have accumulated throughout that year. Now, how do you come up with that list? Right? I mean, this is going to take a while. You think my sermons are long. Right? All look what he says. All their iniquities, all their transgressions, all their sins. This is going to ours. God, we, we worship idols in our heart. God, we, we take your name loosely and disregard your character. Lord, we, we don't keep the Sabbath. Like we, we dishonor our parents and we, we hate people and we lust after people and we take things that are not our own. And, and we Father, we, we tell mistruths because we want people to think better than us and we covet our neighbor's possessions. We're prideful and we judgmental in our hearts. We're bitter. We reject authority. We're unforgiving and greedy and prayerless. Lord, we gossip and we lack love and we're impatient and we're lazy and indifferent and we're cowardly and we're harsh and we're unkind and we burst in anger and we full of envy. It just goes on and on and on confessing all their transgressions, all their sins, all their iniquities. You know why? He's taking all of the, the, the guilt of Israel. And he's putting it upon, just heaping it on this innocent one. There's an old comic strip that has uh, two employees. And the first employee has this massive business failure and he costs the company thousands of dollars. Tens of thousands of dollars. And he decides he's going to tell the boss that it wasn't his doing. It was the doing of the second employee. And the second employee hears this and he confronts the first employee and he's saying, I'm innocent. It wasn't my fault. The first replies to him, I never said it was your fault. I said I was going to blame you. Right? Fault and blame are not always the same. It is not the fault of this goat to be sent away. But he is getting the blame. As verse, look at verse 22. The goat shall bear all their iniquities does that sound familiar there's one called the suffering servant of the lord prophesied in the book of isaiah isaiah chapter 53 and verse 11 my righteous one god says shall bear all their iniquities same word he's going to bear him bear him where look he says verse 22 bear on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free into the wilderness right Look, the goat is being banished. If the tabernacle of God represents Eden, the goat, the goat is being sent away from the presence of God. It's a reenactment of, of the exile from God's presence. The goat goes away so that the sinners can remain, right? And, 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 and so they, they would take the goat away. Tradition would soon develop that a man would take the goat 12 miles away and then throw it off a cliff because you don't want this goat coming back, right? We'll see this goat in two weeks, meandering back into camp. So they got rid of this goat, and I was just—just just, can you think about what this must have been like? I mean, I just wish—I wish there was just a video, just one day, one day of a time. I just want to see it, because what did the people of Israel do as this goat carrying all their sin walked away? Do they start to weep in gratitude? Do they start to sing and praise? Do they start to cheer and shout? Goodbye, sin! Farewell, guilt! So long, condemnation! And by the grace of God and by no righteousness of their own, He sends their sin away. As far as the east is from the west, so far has our God removed our sins from us. You see why there's two goats, don't you? The first goat shows us our sins are paid for. A substitute has died. He has covered our sin. We are forgiven. The second goat doesn't show us forgiveness of sin. It shows that our sins are forgotten. They are cast away from us forever. They are simply not covered. They are gone. I tell you on the authority of the word of God this morning, no matter what you have done, no matter whom you have hurt, no matter what command you have broken, if you place your trust in Christ, your sins will be forgiven and forgotten. For the Lord says, I will remember their sins. What is it? No more. No more. Do not let the enemy continually call your past sins into your mind. He's lying to you. God has sent them away by his abounding grace. And after they are gone, the priest comes out and there's all sorts of interesting things that we don't have time to consider. And there's more offerings. But look at just, look at verse 23. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of the meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on. When he went into the holy place and leave them there, he shall bathe his body in water, verse 24, in a holy place and put on the garments and come out and offer burnt offerings and etc. So what you see is that the high priest now, he washes, he takes off all the linen garments, he puts back on his kingly robes because he's done with that work. He's not going into the presence of God anymore. The atonement has been made until next year. Look at the very last verse in chapter 16. And this will be a statute forever for you. That atonement shall be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sin. You see, (laughs) they continue in their sin. And and so defilement's been taken away. All all the sins have, have been taken away. We've been washed clean. But what happens on their way home? They start to sin. And defilement begins to return. And there's this annual repetition of atonement to tell them of their continual need of forgiveness, to emphasize the need that there there must be one day a full and final cleansing, an atonement to deal forever with sin, a perfect atonement, a permanent atonement, an everlasting atonement. You see, all of this, you know this, don't you? You can see it. I mean, it's almost jumping off the page. It all points us to Christ. All of Leviticus does. He is the sacrifice. He's our perfect sacrifice. He is the priest. He is our great high priest. He is the sacred space. He is the tabernacle. He is where God dwells himself. He is our scapegoat. He has taken our sin away. He is the mercy seat. In fact, you know, when when Peter ran to the the tomb and went right in where the body of Jesus lay, of course, he had risen and left. But what was there? What did he see? But an angel, one at his head. And one at his feet. Reminding us that it is the work of Christ, His death, that is where we find our mercy. He, he he, like like Aaron. I mean, do you read Aaron and Aaron takes off his priestly robes and puts on the, the, the vestments of a servant. Does that not remind you of the Lord Jesus who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made Himself nothing. Taking on what? The form of a servant and being found in the like of man and being found in human form he became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross and just like Aaron entered into the presence of God to atone for sins, so our Lord Jesus did, but not into the tabernacle, but into heaven itself. Even as uh, the, the book of Hebrews tells us, Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And, and, and Aaron went in bearing blood and christ did as well but not the blood of, of of bulls and goats for the word tells us even josh read it today when christ appeared he entered once for all to the holy place not by the means of goat the blood of goats and calves but by the means of his own blood thus securing for us an eternal redemption it's perfect it's last forever and when he was done Did he then not take off those linen garments that shrouded his dead body, just like the high priest, and once again don the glory that is due our Lord? I tell you, Jesus' crucifixion is the definitive day of atonement. Good Friday is our day of atonement, a sacrifice so effective that as you know, the barrier between us and God was ripped into, not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom so that we all have the privilege that the high priest only had and only once a year that we would approach the throne of grace, the Bible says, with boldness that we might receive mercy. My brothers and sisters in Christ do you experience the presence of God Now we won't ex- we don't get to experience like we will one day but he invites us to himself He invites us to commune with him in a way that n- no old covenant believer could even fathom even think about Do, do you walk by his spirit do you draw near to Him? Do you, do you spend your day with God? That's what He invites you to do, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, listen to the Word of God. Let us draw near. Come near to God. Right? Come Because of the work of Christ. And in fact, the the, the Day of Atonement here not only points us to what Jesus has done, it points us to what Jesus will do. You have two goats, each going in opposite directions, don't you? The high priest entering into back into the Garden of Eden, you know, carrying the blood of another. Right? And another goat, laden with guilt, cast away from God's presence into the wilderness. Right? This is a picture of a coming day. One day God will come and He will fully cleanse this world of its sin. He will create a new Eden and a a new city there and it will be cleansed fully and completely and the people of God, you and I, if we are in Christ, the people once defiled and polluted by our own rebellion, we shall reside in God's house just as Aaron did in days long ago bearing the blood of another the Lord Jesus Christ and the scripture will be fulfilled. We he shall dwell in the house of the lord forever and yet all those who refuse the mercy of this holy god and say i will carry my own sin they shall go the way of the goat of damnation they shall be cast out into the wilderness of death and disorder and darkness forever have your sins been atoned for? I stand here before you today and offer you the grace of a holy God. In fact, quickly, we'll just spend a minute here. Notice the reception of the atonement. All what we've seen in Leviticus 16 is the work of the high priest. You notice that? High priest sacrifice. High priest incense, blood, prayer. What do the people do? Look in verse 29. You want to know what the people did as they gathered? It says in verse 29, And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves. Afflict yourselves simply means fast. They stopped eating. And you shall do no work. Either the native or the stranger who sojourns with you. For this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you and you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Verse 31. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you and you shall afflict yourself. It is a statute forever. I love this, right? They did two things. They stopped eating and they stopped working. So what, what did they do? They stopped. They, they did nothing. They brought no sacrifice. They offered no prayers. They completed no good works. They performed no religious rites. God says, if you want atonement, come to Me and do nothing. Perform no work. Why, Why didn't He tell them to bring a bull or a goat or offer a prayer? Because He is teaching them. He's gave them no job so that they would learn they do nothing to earn their place with Him. Another will do all the work on their behalf. Their job is just to come with afflicted hearts and believing souls and trust in the Lord. It's the same for us today. You want atonement? Draw near to God. Not with works. Not with religious acts. But with a repentant faith. The Bible says if you confess with your sins that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Your sins can be atoned for if you would come and trust. Our Father in Heaven, we are so thankful. Our thankfulness is not enough, is it? It seems insufficient, my God. Help us to be in awe That we people who have and do pollute Your beautiful creation with our rebellion and our wayward hearts even now have been washed clean by the blood of Christ. And we pray for those who are here today. Maybe some came thinking, I'm okay with God just as I am. Will You help them wrestle with this passage? Help them not just to throw it aside, but consider it. Maybe even now, by Your Spirit and Your kindness, You're causing One to be born again, that they might bow their knee to You in faith and say, I believe. I surrender my life to Jesus. Forgive me of my sins. Send it away from me that I might follow You, my God, forever. Build Your kingdom. Hallow Your name. Even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.